Welcome back. We're in our final section today. We'll be uh, finishing up in about an hour and 10, 15 minutes. And then uh, having a nice break before dinner and meet you back here in the morning at um, 9.15. We'll get started again. Um, and there's a meeting in this room from 8 to 9. Um, and an Al-Anon meeting from 8 to 9 tomorrow morning in this small room back there. The quick reference back to the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions book I want to make right now is to uh, essentially what it adds in in the Step 3 segment. Um, And again, I love to play Find the Hidden Steps, so we'll just read the first paragraph here and find the hidden steps. Practicing step three is like the opening of a door which to all appearances is still closed and locked. All we need is a key and the decision to swing the door open. There's only one key and that is called willingness, which I still contend is step one. Once unlocked by willingness, step one, the door opens almost of itself. And looking through it, we shall see a path way, steps four through nine, beside which is an inscription. The inscription reads, this is the way to a faith, steps, the way to a faith is steps four through nine, that works. In the first two steps, we were engaged in reflection. And again, the, the 12 by makes it clear that steps one and two aren't action steps. They're reflection steps and information. Um, we saw that we were powerless over alcohol, step one, but we also perceived, step two, that faith of some kind, if only in AA itself, is possible to anyone. These conclusions did not require action. They required only acceptance. Like all the remaining steps, three calls for affirmative action. And again, in the big book, all of the action steps are italicized segments of the book, starting on page 60, being convinced we were at step three, being convinced of what? A, that, what is A? A, that we were powerless over alcohol. B, that, yeah. A is step one, B is part of step two, and C is the rest of step two. Being convinced of the truth about steps one and steps two, it would make perfect sense that I'm at step three. A, that we were powerless and could not manage our own lives. B, that no human power could relieve our alcoholism. And C, that God could and would if God were sought. So this action is actually in the form of, of a prayer. And I really enjoyed the Bedford Village group when we went there. It was a 50-mile drive from the farm, far enough away from the farm. Um, and uh, everybody in that group is on Thursday nights, Wednesday nights? Wednesdays at 8 o'clock up in the tower um, of that congregational church on the village green of Bedford Village. Um, most everybody had done the work out of the book, and the sponsorship was out of the book. And uh, it's interesting to note that I met... Um, four wonderful guys uh, in our stretch in, in New York and in Westchester, Westchester. And many of them were students of the book. And one's dead. One's facing three felony charges. One's deciding whether or not he needs to be in a sober house. And another one, I think, is still out there. And... Um, I have a lot of respect for this disease, and it makes me hugely sad to witness its continued wreaking of its havoc um, on uh, on people. And I know it's doing that a lot out there. And so, again, the idea of I get uniquely qualified to be a point of attraction, to be a light for somebody else, is one of the reasons I still go to meetings. Um, and I had an opinion about certain meetings, but I'm just happy now 
to point out two sentences in the big book, bottom of page 15 and top of page 160. The bottom of page 15 says, we meet frequently so that newcomers may find the fellowship they seek. And the top of page 160, the first full sentence says, aside from fellowship and sociability, the main purpose of meetings was to provide a time and a place where new people might bring their troubles. And I realized that in the early days, meetings were for the newcomer. Meetings were there um, aside from fellowship and sociability. Uh, meetings were for the struggling new person. Uh, and that helps me um, know why I need to be at meetings, not only because they fill my cup, but it's just possible that uh, that may be a place where someone might come up to me and say, what'd you say? That was pretty interesting. You know, and then we'll... Um, and we'll go. We'll take it from there. So, in essence, the third step chapter in in um, in the twelve by um, starts talking about the instincts in terms of independence and dependence. And as we've seen now in this comprehensive list of instincts, the emotional security is met through dominance or dependence. And so our struggles early on in in the program have to do with you know, we get the crap kicked out of us physically from alcohol, so we don't mind surrendering that. But the moment our mental or emotional independence is in question, how differently we behave, top of page 37. And so, again, it's just so much easier to recognize what's going on with people if we understand these instincts. People's resistance to step two or people's resistance to step three are certainly issues of dependence and independence, of dominance and dependence. And for me, you know, that that uh, love and tolerance of others is our code that it talks about on step 84, on step 10, on page 84. Step 84. <laughs> uh, now, there, there's a complicated program. Uh, <laughs> What's that rule? Rule 62. Yeah. Don't take yourself so damn seriously. And yeah. So um, it starts talking about um, independence and dependence, and again, self-sufficiency, over-reliance on self. Bottom of page 37. The sum of all this mighty effort is less peace and less brotherhood than before. The philosophy of self-sufficiency is not paying off. Plainly enough. It is a bone-crushing juggernaut whose final achievement is ruin. Self-sufficiency, over-reliance on self, over-reliance on demanding that our instincts be met in the world. What language? Bone-crushing juggernaut whose final achievement is ruin. Bill was quite a writer, especially if I knew know the context. You know, I'd read that. I'd hear that at a... Uh, 12 and 12th meeting and, and, and think about it as so kind of one of those 12 and 12 phrases. Uh, but now I know what it's really talking about. It goes on to talk about the juggernaut of self-will. Um, wrong forms of dependence, too much emotional dependence upon a parent, uh, forms of faulty dependence. So the interesting part about these instincts that they need to have some element of being met but the key is understanding what it says in the next chapter. Yet these instincts, so necessary for our existence, often far exceed their proper function. Um, and that, again, uh, really for me falls into the brilliant phase. By now, page 39, though, the chances are that they have become convinced that they are more, there are more problems in alcohol and that some of these refuse to be solved by all sheer personal determination and courage they can muster. And so this is, again, catching the person who's been in the program for a while, whose life has still got some real struggles to it, and helping them understand that this isn't uncommon, but this is the byproduct of self-sufficiency. These simply will not budge. They make them desperately unhappy and threaten their newfound sobriety, our friend is still victimized by remorse and guilt when they think of yesterday. Bitterness still overpowers them when they brood upon those they still envy or hate. Their financial insecurity worries them sick. 
Um, his lone courage and unaided will cannot do it. Again, the theme of this, that over-reliance on self, the key of which I think is unlocked in pages 60 to 64 uh, in the big book. Um, middle of the last paragraph on page 39, is still unmanageable even though he is sober. And that, you know, I, I long heard Joe talk about there's a lot of untreated alcoholism in AA. And now I know where he was getting it. He was getting it basically from this repetition of why Bill wrote the 12 and 12, because there was a lot of untreated alcoholism in AA back then. And, and so that applicability is still justly there that to highlight that. So a big finish, um, again, solidifying these themes. Um, but it is bound to be a far cry from permanent sobriety and a contented, useful life. Nothing short of continuous action upon these as a way of life can bring the much desired result. And so when I see steps one through 12 as a way of life, I'm seeing that steps one, two, and three are just as much a way of life. And I have to get one, two, and three to get four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 to get 12. And that's what I love about program of action steps. None of them exists alone. They only were, only, were delivered to the next step by the previous step. And I can't get to 12 without 11, without 10, without 9, without 8, all the way down to the foundation element of this program, the simple definition of the true nature of my malady and its three-pronged grasp in my life, three-clawed grasp in my heart, a body that can't take alcohol, a mind that can't leave it alone, and on my own, a spiritual condition that can't do anything about it. They have become persuaded, and rightly so, that many problems besides alcohol will not yield to a headlong assault powered by the individual alone. These are all on page 40. It is when we try to make our will conform with God's that we begin to use it rightly. And there's a, a metaphysical statement I read in a book called The Edinburgh Lectures on Mental Science that Nell Wing reported in her, um, oh, no, that Nell Wing was quoted as saying in Mel B's book, New Wine, that a early AAs before the big book came out were recommended to read three books, James Allen's As a Man Thinketh, Emmett Fox's Sermon on the Mount, and Thomas Troward's Edinburgh Lectures on Mental Science. And in that Edinburgh Lectures on Mental Science, which is a real heady discussion of scientific discussion of God uh, that takes me about 10 times reading each sentence to, to think I know what it means, um, he makes the simple statement, nature obeys us to the precise degree that we obey nature. You're never going to beat that. Nature obeys us to the precise degree that we obey nature. Flight is a byproduct of that. Pilots don't create flight. They create the conditions that benefit from the laws of aerodynamic lift. And one of the reasons you don't bother the pilot is that they are, they're God on those planes. You know, pilot can get you in a federal prison because there is a narrow range in which that plane needs to stay. Altitude, speed, lift, all of that to experience the joy of being able to get from Minneapolis to Hartford in two hours and two minutes. Page drives out to the Cape, and it takes like three days. That's traveling with a dog. But um, so much of life is, is, and success in life is exactly based on that truth. Nature obeys us to the precise degree that we obey nature. And recovery is no different. And here's a summary of 
kind of the same thing. It is when we try to make our will conform with God's that we begin to use it rightly. To all of us, this was a most wonderful revelation. Bottom of page 40, 12, and 12 by. Our whole trouble had been the misuse of willpower. We had tried to bombard our problems with it instead of attempting to bring it into agreement with God's intention for us. To make this increasingly possible is the purpose of AA's 12 steps, and step three opens the door. So the themes of this are so reinforcing. And as we continue now to the step four instructions, which obviously follow three, I want to go back to page 63 in the basic text. Uh, New Hampshire 1660484 and Vermont DFW 2999 pull cars in blocking road. New Hampshire 1660484 and Vermont DFW 299. Yep. Reminds me of the old Twins game in Metropolitan Stadium. They had these joke announcements, you know, well, the owner of uh, a green 62 Chevrolet Minnesota license plate X42976827241 2912171788 uh please move your car your license is blocking the roadway Third step prayer, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I might better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. And interestingly enough, there's no amen after that prayer on page 63. And I've heard it said, I have it on good authority, (laughs) that that was consciously done, and the only amen in the first 164 pages is on page 76 after the seven-step prayer. And what I tell newcomers is to protect themselves during this process of taking a good look at themselves in a way they have never been able to before, to remember that this whole thing, three, four, five, six, and seven, is a prayerful process. The longest prayer in the big book, the step three, four, five, six, seven prayer, starts on page 63 and it ends on page 76. Now I'm making that up, but I sure like it. And there is no amen on page 63, so who knows. This was only a beginning, code word in the big book for the third step, though if honestly and humbly made, an effect, sometimes a very great one, was felt at once. So when I'm sitting down with a new sponsee, I ask them, are you convinced that your life run on your will can hardly be a success? Um, Are you ready to quit playing God? Did it work? Have you decided that hereafter in this drama of life, you're going to, he's going to be the director and you're going to be the principal? No, he's the principal. We're his agents. He's the father. We're his kids. Um, and have you thought well before taking this step? Um, and when you do say it, express it, voicing without reservation, honestly and humbly. Now we say the prayer together, and, and, the wor- and the words are optional. If somebody wants to rewrite it, that's fine with me, as long as it captures the idea that I'm no longer going to be the deal. I'm a part of the deal, but I'm no longer going to be the deal. Very powerful experience. Um, I find that most people have already had their third-step experience before they do one with me uh, as a result of getting into the process. Um, it's still a, a very important point because it sets the time frame for doing the four step which is at once 
Um, next, after the, the beginning, and, and again, I love to play Find the Hidden Steps, so we're going to do it on the page, bottom of page 63. Next, after the third step prayer, we launched out on a course of vigorous action. A course is, is more than one thing, and so that's four through nine. The course of vigorous action is steps four through nine. Next, after step three, we launched out on steps four through nine. The first step of which, step four, is a personal house cleaning, which many of us had never attempted. Why do you think many of us had never attempted a personal house cleaning? Didn't have a house, yeah. (laughs) That's one reason. Didn't know how. Didn't know we needed it. Extreme example of self will run riot, though we usually don't think so. My house is just fine, very much. (laughs) You'll never know I did that on tape. (laughs) Which many of us had never attempted because my house is just fine. And I was never sicker than when I was an extreme example of self-will run riot and I didn't have a clue, never sicker. I started to get well when I realized how sick I was and that happened that morning, the morning after I tried to kill myself and the doctor gently asked me a question that indicated that there was something going on in my life. Pretty dramatic. Though our decision step was a vital and crucial step It could have little permanent effect. An effect, sometimes a great one was felt at once, but the effect is going to be permanent unless at once, that's the time frame between three and four if you're following the directions in the book, followed by a strenuous effort, read action, to face step four, the title of this segment of the tape, and be rid of steps five through nine, the things in ourselves, the elements of our instinctual pattern exceeding their proper function, which had been blocking us. Blocking us from what? The God that's already a part of each of us. This is incredibly consistently written. Uh, And I know from the workshop that I did with Bill Pittman back in 03, um, first trip I took after my uh, serious eye problem, and it was a real felt like a courageous thing to do to go out on the road and I'd been not working for a month and uh, just got really knocked off the spiritual path by a, a vision problem in my left eye. And um, and to, to be here and to hear Bill talk about, um, you know, his having had been able to review the printer's copy of the original manuscript, the, the manuscript that everybody wrote in that was taken to the printer um, that was sold uh, on Sotheby's three years ago for six, for 1.57 something million dollars. Um, how very, very carefully it was. It was divinely inspired, and they edited the hell out of it. And I really appreciate that now because there are there's really there's only one thing in the book that seems inconsistent to me, and I I look at it all the time. And that one thing is when in Dr. Bob's nightmare, he talks about craving alcohol for two and a half years. And nowhere else in the book is craving used in terms of other than the illness of the body, which is triggered when we drink. And um, now with this brain chemistry stuff, and they're coming out with anti-craving medications, um, they're talking about muting and dumbing down euphoric recall. And, you know, I those certainly, the, the problem with those things is, the, is that they're sold as solutions when, in fact, they're no better than antabuse. And I've never had anything against antabuse except if you had to be on it for the rest of your life. Or in Russia where they would give guys, alcoholics, injections of a long-acting antabuse and nothing else and they would essentially die because they, they had to drink because they couldn't drink and they couldn't not drink. But they had, they got so sick every time, they would literally die. That was treatment for alcoholism in Russia, which back in the 70s had a male mortality average age of 47. 
pandemic alcoholism. Anyway, boy, will I ever get back. Where was I? Um, Had been blocking us. I'll just jump back to the text. Our liquor was but a symptom, and you never tell that to a newcomer. That's on page 64. That's on the day we graduate. We graduated on page 23 from an illness of the body to an illness of the mind, and now we graduate on page 64 from an illness of the body and the mind to an illness of the spirit. But the way they introduce that is by saying our liquor was but a symptom. And the reason you don't tell that to a newcomer, or at least I wouldn't, I know how I'd feel if, if I was told that when I went to AA, because I'd say, well, let's take care of what's really wrong with me, and then I'll buy you beer. That's really how I would think. So our liquor was but a symptom of one more symptom of our spiritual malady. And so we had to get down to causes and conditions. So there are three common manifestations of self that the book bases its instructions on pages 63 to 71 of what we're going to look at. Now, Neil's got some character defects that I don't have, and I've got some character defects that Neil doesn't have. Paige has got, is it Leslie? Allison? Allison's got some character defects that Paige doesn't have, and Paige has some character defects that Allison doesn't have. Jay's got some character defects that uh, Walter doesn't have, and Walter's got some character defects that Jay doesn't have. However, there are Oh, Jay's perfect. I'm sorry. (laughs) Gee, Jay must have died. (laughs) There are three we all have. Common manifestations of self. Common manifestations of instincts exceeding their proper function. Resentments. Fears and harms to others. Now, one of the things that Recovery Dynamics does in a lovely, lovely way is that it lines up resentments, fears, and harms to others with the three general categories of instincts. And where do you think we experience our resentments? In the social instinct. Where do you think we experience our fears? In the security instinct. And where do you think it's a high risk for hurting others? Sex. Three common manifestations of self because they're reflective of three common elements of self. Our instincts, our great gifts, the instincts. Resentment is the number one offender. Our security instincts are met through our social connections. The emotional security is typically met through our social instincts. And that's why um, there's no more important area of investigation, as it says on page 80 in the 12 and 12, and I'm, I'm zipping ahead. But here's an amazing statement that sheds a lot of light on this stuff and the importance of relationships. Since page 80, the 12 by in step 8, Since defective relations with other human beings have nearly always been the immediate cause of our woes, including our alcoholism, and that goes back to defective relationships in our childhoods. I had defective relationships in my childhoods, in my childhood, and that contributed to my spiritual malady. And my spiritual malady was a, I was a complete, I was a sitting duck for alcoholism because of my of becoming an al- for, for alcoholism because I already had the ism our spiritual malady our over-reliance on self is our ism and if you've heard me speak before you've heard the three of them ism stands for I self and me I sponsor myself And I think the best one, given our 12 by context today, I'm still miserable. (laughs) Classic. Perfect. Yes. Interior spiritual malady. malady. Yep. 
Since defective relations with other human beings have nearly always been the immediate cause of our woes, including our alcoholism, no field of investigation could yield more satisfying and valuable rewards than this one. Calm, thoughtful reflection upon personal relations can deepen our insight. Because in our personal relations, we're going to see the condition of our spiritual malady or our spiritual fitness. So, in the book, between pages 64 and 70, it is stated it states nine times that resentments kill us. And I'll just quickly go through them. Page 64. Resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. Number one. Resentment destroys more alcoholics than alcohol. How's that possible? It destroys the alcoholics who aren't drinking as well. Another great theme for the 12 by. Resentments destroy more alcoholics than anything else, including alcohol, because resentments also destroy the alcoholics who aren't drinking. 66. This business of resentment is infinitely grave. Number two, middle of the page, next sentence. We found it is fatal. Number three. A few lines down from that. For when harboring such feelings, we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit. I mean, this is the problem with resentments. You can't have a resentment. You can't sustain a resentment and sustain being spiritually fit. You can have a resentment and grow even more spiritually from it, which is the goal, but you can't harbor them. When you harbor a resentment, you're gathering them close to you and holding them dear. We shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit. The insanity of alcohol returns. Illness of the mind always precedes the illness of the body. And we drink again. Now we're back to the illness of the body. And with us, to drink is to die. Four. Five. If we were to live, we had to be free of anger. I um, loved logic courses because the logic is pretty predictable. And I learned that the contrapositive of a true statement is also true. And if the true statement is, if A, then B, the contrapositive, if not B, then not A, is always true. Just something I learned and, and in a silly way remember yet today. So a contrapositive negates and reverses the statement. And that's why I, I didn't find this one for quite a long time, because it says, if we were to live, we had to be free of anger. Well, a contrapositive of that is, if we were not free of anger, we would not live. And that's number number five. The grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. The grouch and the brainstorm may, the du- may be the dubious luxury of normal people, but for alcoholics, the grouch and the brainstorm are poison, number six. We began to see that the world, next paragraph, that the world and its people really dominated us. In the state of the world and its people really dominating us, the wrongdoing of others, fancied or real, had power to actually kill. Seven. Last two were on page 70 in the last full paragraph. We have begun to comprehend resentment's futility and fatality. Number eight. We have commenced to see resentment's terrible destructiveness. Number nine. Why do we need to deal with resentments? Because they kill us. That's the only reason. You need to do a resentment inventory because it'll kill you if you don't. Pretty pretty straightforward. Um, so now we get into these directions that I never got on my own. But we're better prepared to look at this stuff now because we have some context for these directions. And when I have the right context for these directions, they're very good directions. I... I don't use any other handouts now except Joe's three parts of self because I think that's one hell of a column three. In dealing with resentments, we set them on paper. We listed people, institutions, or principles with whom we were angry. And when I give these directions, when I point out these directions to a newcomer I'm working with, that's all I stop right there. As I said, you don't need to know the sequence 
to have this miracle happen to you, you only need to be willing to follow directions. And I think if I did go ahead and tell them more, it it just kind of complicates things. Because when they know what comes next, they tend to then move to the second column before they're done with the first column. And I think there's some real wisdom in really looking at each column in its entirety before moving along. I think a, a subsequent fourth step can be done, you know, once one of these has been done. I think the other ones can be done with a little more flexibility. But I really think that sticking with each column and listing people, institutions, or principles with whom you're angry is is all the instruction that somebody needs. And then when they bring that back, um, you go over it and get a sense of its thoroughness and completeness. Then you move on to the next direction. Um, we asked ourselves why we were angry. Now, the first one equates to the first column over on the next page I'm resentful at, people, institutions, or principles with whom I am angry. And the second one, we list why, we asked ourselves why we were angry, is the second column, the cause. In essence, what did they do? And I think it's very important for that, even though Bill's examples here aren't, all of them aren't specific, I think it's very important that those examples in the second column, the cause, are specific. And people who use Recovery Dynamics Comprehensive Program call them the video clips. If you're general, that would be like a lifelong movie. But the second operation is a video clip. And a video clip is a relatively short video. I mean, YouTube and all that. I don't look at YouTube, but they're video clips. They're not movies. And the second column needs to be a video clip. And it's a video clip of what somebody did to hurt you. Because one of the keys that unlocked this process for me is when Joe and Charlie went to a dictionary and and got the word etymology of the word resentment and saw that it is a Latin prefix re that means again and a Latin word centere which means feeling. And that the truth about the word resentment and what it means is that it is a re-feeling of an old hurt. It is very different than being angry. And my theory is that it's easier for us to be angry than it is to be hurt. So we re-feel the old hurt, then all of a sudden we get angry again. Either is what you're looking for. The people, institutions, or principles with whom you're angry, the people or institutions who hurt you, but you're going to find it more often in anger than in hurt. But the truth of the word is it's re-feeling an old hurt. So you get hurt in real time, that's a hurt. But 10 minutes later out in the parking lot as you're going home, you say, that bastard. That's your first resentment. A week later, you're planning their murder. Whom, do, whom did I meet in treatment that might know some uh, of those characters who could uh, get a contract on somebody? Or 10 years later, the whole path of your life has been altered by this continuing hurt. Um, that just won't go away. And in those video clips um, is the key to being able to, at a point in the fourth column, gosh, there's no fourth column on page 65. Um, It appears in the text a few pages later um, where I get to um, look for who I was in that video before they hurt me. Now, a very important caution for anybody explaining this process to a newcomer or anybody is the caveat of never looking for your part in instances of physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. It is a very valid reason to not do one of these four steps if the person explaining it can't help the individual see that there is nothing they could have done that triggered a perpetrator to do what they did. That's the definition of abuse. So if people have those histories, I just say, let's leave that on, let's leave that off to the side for the time being and work on some simpler situations. Those kinds of histories really warrant good professional help and support, both good therapy and, and good group therapy. The feeling of having shared in a common peril is just as healing for abuse victims as it is for us. There's a fellowship 
an understanding, uh, a kindness indescribably great. So with that caveat mentioned, we go from the comprehensive list of people, institutions, or principles with whom we're angry to in each of those, for each of those instances, we go back and we say, okay, what specifically did the first person on my list do? What else did they do? What else did they do? And if you're in a relationship with somebody, if this is a companion or a parent or somebody you've been in a relationship for a long time, there could be quite a few video clips. And I don't mean to scare anybody, but when this is done comprehensively, there can be like 1,300, 1,500 of them. And for people who have the time working the Recovery Dynamics program in a six-month program, they're able to do that kind of inventory. Um, so, question? Oh, okay. Um, then, once that video clip, we asked ourselves why we were angry, list is completed, we move on to the next, next one, which is affects mine. And listen to the language and have compassion for yourself why you never got it, reading it on your own. We asked ourselves why we were angry. Without saying it's the next column, it says, in most cases, it was found that our self-esteem, our pocketbooks, our ambitions, our personal relationships, including sex, were hurt or threatened. So we were sore. We were burned up. So they throw us this list of kind of a random list of instinctual traits telling us that we're going to be looking at those parts of ourselves being affected. On our grudge list, we set opposite each name our injuries. Now, these are the instructions for the third column. Was it our self-esteem, our security, our ambitions, our personal or sex relations, which had been interfered with? And as I said earlier, I think one of my theories is why there's so much more about the instincts in the 12 by than there is in the big book, is that you don't need to know that much about the instincts to do a good initial four-step. You do need to know quite a bit about the instincts to get emotionally balanced, and to live lives of good purpose. Which again is the whole theme of the 12 and 12. Not only to get sober, but to get emotionally stable and to live lives of good purpose. So, we went back through our lives. And so I have this literal translation that when, and this is what I tell the people I teach this to, we went back through our lives, meaning we start now and go back looking for these resentments. It says later, when we do a fifth step, we need to tell another person our whole story. Where do stories start? At the beginning. I also find this to be a real economy of effort because guess where the foundation seed of our middle-aged resentments were born, were planted in our childhoods. And instead of starting with the 43 different figures of authority that my sponsee resents, if we did the fifth step from currently to back, if we start with his dad, then I hear him say things like, you know, and by junior high, it was my, it was my hockey coach that I resented. And then by senior high, it was the principal. And in college, and so I say economy of effort, that it becomes much more clear to the person sharing their story this pattern of early resentments, early fears, and early harms to others continue to grow different patterns in our lives. What happens after the comprehensive checking of the third column, parts of self-affected, now using this, I think, rightly comprehensive list provided by Joe in Recovery Dynamics, is that we get, I think, a very great gift in that material. I don't believe in burning four steps. I don't know if that's a tradition uh, anywhere, but... You know, certainly the information shouldn't wind up ever being public, but 
that third operation, that parts of self-affected, I'm going to see so much of which of my instincts kept getting a check in this long list of uh, harms that when I was hurt by other people, the, the, the resentment triggered by that. And I think that this gives you kind of a fingerprint of your instinctual graph. It gives you, it, it gives you a graph. And I'll just share with you, there are three things that always show up in my third column. Self-esteem, emotional security, and personal relationships. Always. Those are three things always affected. Because for me, self-esteem and emotional security have become wed. And the interesting part of that list of instincts isn't themselves as they're listed on that sheet, but it's how they get glumped together in us in very different ways. But you need to understand that. And I think that's a great gift that this inventory gives us, this third operation. That it's always self-esteem and emotional security related to personal relationships. So I needed everybody's approval. My, my public visibility, you know, when I look at Joe's list, uh, my public visibility, I, I was an oversensitive guy. I went to five grade schools and four high schools. I presented with a, a, a psychiatrist in, in Los Angeles once who heard me tell my story, which was part of the presentation. And she said, you know, Fred, we in child psychiatry consider three moves prior to adolescence as childhood trauma. I never thought that I had childhood trauma. I thought I was oversensitive. But I have a lot more respect now for that vulnerable kid when I look back on my life early on and how it was encouraged or decouraged these basic instincts. Think about your own life as a kid. And when I say as a kid, I mean we're vulnerable. We don't have the whole deal. Uh, frontal cortex doesn't come in until 25. That's why those crazy movies uh, show these kids doing things that people with normal frontal cortexes wouldn't. You know, And generally they stop starring in those things by the time they're 25. But when I think back on my life, and how it supported or complicated a natural desire to belong or be accepted. Moving around a lot changed that every year. I was always the new kid in school. And for a long time, I kind of blamed my alcoholism on that moving around a lot until I found myself sitting in the rooms with people next to me who said, you know, I lived in the same house for 18 years. <laughs> and I had a miserable childhood. So they took that one away from me. But the idea of my having a compassion for this oversensitive kid moving every year. So companionship was constantly thwarted. However, I loved music and I was a decent flute player. So I got my companionship by joining band, a natural desire to belong or be accepted. And I was usually first chair. So that also kicked in then a little pride and a little self-esteem, and a little prestige. So then, in Spokane, Washington, my junior year, where I was supposed to be the main drum major back in Great Falls, we moved. Do I sound like I still have a resentment? I think I do. <laughs> I, the band, I just couldn't, they, you know, I couldn't, they weren't a good band. I mean, they weren't a band that I was used to. So I didn't even play. So I tried out for the Spokane Junior Symphony and got in. Guess what happened? We moved before that season started to St. Paul. And so I just have compassion, as your sigh uh, affirmed, um, for the effect that this would have on me. And I think 
you know, I'll, I'll do the shame bit all by myself, which is the problem with shame. We don't need anything in reality to trigger it. Um, but the compassion that I have for myself as a vulnerable young guy who had a lot of things in his, in his life that weren't that supportive. And so I don't think I was really abused but I think my oversensitivity and moving around a lot made it very, very difficult for me not to get a little over-reliant on self. And, I, and, and you know, I know some of the personal histories in this room from childhood are, are horror stories. And we just have to really respect that. But it helps me, and I think it helps people who can get a bead on why that's so difficult because our instincts were not being met and they were a constant desire and drive for us. So we had to go about getting them ourselves. Now, quick question. Why do you think gangs are so easy to establish in bad neighborhoods? Because a gang will meet every instinct in spades for typically a group of people who are not having those met, single parent or grandparent kinds of homes, uh, subpar education, racism, a real thumb held down on these people's lives. It makes perfect sense to me. And I don't have anything against gang members. I mean, I don't want to get killed by one. But I understand perfectly why... They're involved. It has everything to do with instincts. It helps me not be judgmental. And you know, Bill obviously understood the instincts. And I think the greatest aid to tolerance and love of others isn't just kind of trying to stay spiritually fit and and all of this, but it's understanding these instincts. Because it helps me not personalize somebody else's stuff which I often have a tendency to do. But if I have this simple palette of colors of instincts, um, it makes it much easier not to diagnose them and say, well, you know, you really need to work on your prestige and your pride and, and your material security. Uh, but, be, but I can just see the dynamic as a very human dynamic. Yes. Yeah, and the question is a very good one. It has to do with the our instincts are there to be met, and if they're not being met, I need to meet them. And there's a level. What it, what this is really all about is balance. And the the best answer I can give to your question, it's Walter, right? The best answer I can give to your question is that when I'm dealing with an instinctual self of this dimension. It is very, very different than when I'm dealing with an instinctual self of this dimension. That's why knowing this stuff won't get me from here to here, but following the directions will. And it's a lot easier to be a person with balanced instincts with being spiritually fit than it is when I'm spiritually unfit. And I think the other truth is, I haven't really settled on this, and since I don't do any research or science, it'll, it'll only be a, a best guess eventually. I think the, the profile of our instinctual fingerprint that we kind of see in our first four-step, third column, probably doesn't change that much in our lives. That those, those things still remain a part of us. I will always have an over, overly active sense of, of need for approval. And isn't it funny I do what I do? One of the reasons that this is a healthy way for me to get that prestige or pride 
met that way is that it takes into consideration God and others. And that's the whole key. We can go meet our instincts. And I'm going to use Ernie Kurtz's phrase here, and I can never remember it, and that's good. When we meet our instincts proper to God and appropriate upon others. When we meet our instincts proper to God and appropriate upon others, with others in mind. And the demand and the, the, the very real problem with that is that if I demand, either through dominance or dependence, if I demand security from somebody else or I demand to dominate somebody else, I'm, I'm, I'm expecting them to be God or me to be God. And that's a lie. So proper to God means in the right context and perspective. And appropriate upon others follows. So the art of right living is the art of instinctual management. And that's why I think there's so much about instincts in the 12 by. Because it is the heart and soul of the issues that we're up against immediately when we stop drinking. When we're given the gift of abstinence. But in essence, my instinctual profile that was so disproportionate at the age of 14, I was no poster child for Piaget child development at the age of 14, I'll guarantee you. When I had that first drink and I got a chemical solution to my spiritual misery, I didn't grow, I didn't learn emotionally from that point forward. That got deferred until the age of 27 when I got sober. And I will always feel about 15 years behind. Keeps me young, right? And I'm 59, but I think I'm going through a midlife crisis right now. I'm a little late, about 15 years late. Well, that makes sense to me. That's a, that's a great question, but I think it strikes at the heart of ultimately when we follow directions, not just get it intellectually, but when we follow directions, we're delivered to a character that is much easier to manage because it's my life in the context of God and others, not God and others in the context of me. Proper use of our human will, free will. So the four-step prayer comes after the third column of parts of self-affected. And we, we, we got near it when I was reading, um, we began to see that the world and its people really dominated us. When you look at a resentment list for the first time and how huge it is, um, it's like, oh, I begin to see how the world and its people really dominated me. Uh, I've heard some wonderful ways to talk about resentments. Uh, resentments are like letting somebody live in your head rent-free. Resentments are like wetting your pants. Everybody can see it, but you're the only one who feels it. Ew. Ew. Resentment is the dubious luxury of normal people. I mean, it isn't pretty to look at resentment. And, you know, I have lunch where I work, and there are certain tables that I sometimes at lunch I just have to get up because it is, it is resentment city. It is poison city. It is victim city. And my option would be to stay and try to save them. <laughs> Just kidding. Start throwing some big book quotes at them. Um, or to just vote with my feet and, and say that this environment isn't what I'd, how I'd like to spend my lunch hour. But page 60, bottom of 66, has this very, very important information about 
the difference between compassion and forgiveness. Now, I think we abuse people who are abuse victims when we suggest to them that they have to forgive the perpetrator. Why would you ever want to do that? Why would you ever want to forgive somebody who treated you that way? Now, forgiveness, I think, is optional. Compassion is not. And this is where the book teaches me the gift of compassion. Bottom of 66, this was our course. We realized that the people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. And at some point it becomes, duh. You know, I, when I read this book carefully, I'm getting my duh diploma. <laughs> the obvious, though he usually didn't think so, insight is, is very mood-altering. And to see these things for the first time is really joyous. That's what the 12 and 12 talks about. We realize that the people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. Now, if one of the three common manifestations of self is harms to others, and I'm seeing that as a symptom of my spiritual malady, doesn't it make sense that I'm going to grant others that same context? It's purely a context. But the context of perpetrator and victim will keep you full of resentment, and resentments will, will kill you even justifiable resentments. And that's the great tragedy of, of abuse. You should resent those people. But now that you've got this dilemma that's got a way to kill you through the illness of the body and the mind, we need to still deal with even those um, justifiable resentments. And I think the, the, the key is recognizing that if I can grant my own harms to others as a symptom of my spiritual malady, then I need to grant that to others. And to understand that even though it was so personal, those who wronged me were incredibly spiritually sick. And I view my mom, who couldn't have tried harder to be a good mother for me. But she was an untreated codependent. And my infantile need met more of her untreated codependency need than I ever allowed her to meet of mine. But I let her do everything for me. She was writing thank you notes for me when I was in college. God bless her. Nobody wants us. Well, nobody wants them to stop doing what they're doing, those untreated codependents, because they get the thank you notes written. Didn't even have to ask. Just always responded, have you thanked your friend's mother whose house you stayed at at spring break? No, not yet, but I will. Have you thanked her? Two weeks later. No, not yet, but I will. Two weeks later. I was checked in every two weeks. That was my family life when I was off in college. Um, I sent that thank you to your friend's mother. You know, somebody asked me the third powerful question of my life, not only when have you tried to kill yourself before, not only what happens when you get caught up in life, but the third most powerful open-ended question that has provided me with great growth is the question, who taught you to take care of yourself? And uh, um, no one, and I let her not teach me. So um, we realized that the people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick, though we did not like their symptoms and the way these disturbed us, the symptoms of their spiritual malady. They, like ourselves, were sick too. We don't pray for them. That comes on page 551 if you still have a resentment after you've done the big book four step. We pray that God help us show them the same tolerance, pity, and patience we would cheerfully grant a sick friend. And it's it's a trick, but it can work. And I heard an abuse victim, abuse victim tell a story about uh, resenting the parent that had abused them, hating them. Uh, one day, ask God to help them with that resentment. Later that day, they saw a person getting out of a car that clearly had arthritis and was in terrible pain, and they had compassion for that person before they realized it was the perp. 
So through another context, they were able to have compassion for, for, the, for the abuse victim. That was the answer to that prayer. This is really powerful stuff, and we haven't even looked at our part yet. But I think the information that this gives us at this point in our path is priceless because it gives us a very quick way of diffusing the anger that would come from a hurt and to say, well, well, in real time, it says when a person offended, there's two. We do one thinking about the past. We help God show us the same tolerance, pity, and patience. We would cheerfully grant a sick friend. Then the real time was, the real time one is, this is a sick person. How can I be helpful to them? God, save me from being angry. Thy will be done. It's helped me lots of times not make things a lot worse in a tense situation. This is a sick person. How can I be helpful to them? Gosh, you don't sound very happy today. Is there anything I can do? What a difference between then, between that and, and um, don't tell me what to do. Very different life. So, um, well, we're going to wrap this up today. And when we come back tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock, did I say? 9.15. Um, we're going to continue to face uh, the, this, continue to face step four and be rid of steps five through nine. The things in ourselves are overly active instinctual profiles that have been blocking us from the true spirit of the universe that's in each of us. And um, enjoy your afternoon. Um, whew, 